This week, the newspapers have been full of lots of things, uh, but quite a surprising amount of ink has been spilled on trying to understand why Will Young has exited from the BBC show Strictly Come Dancing. And he cited personal reasons, but that was not enough, and so they wanted to do a thorough understanding. Now, I personally don't watch the show. Um, I don't really get dancing. I'm not a good dancer myself. Uh, and I don't really know much about Will. But I did come across some very honest quotes uh, this past week that he'd made in past interviews. And in that, it appears that he experienced a major depressive breakdown in 2012, despite having a very successful music career. Uh, his unhappiness has manifested itself in numerous addictions. And Will has said this, I moved into my new house, my album went to number one, and I was miserable. I'd buy houses and get nothing from it. Bought cars, got nothing from it. I've gone out and spent 5,000 pounds in Selfridges and nothing. I didn't even wear the stuff. All those things I thought would bring me happiness don't. I was a love addict. I still am an addict, addicted to porn, alcohol. I'll keep coming back to shame because it's such a fundamental thing. I think we're told as soon as we come out, everything will be okay, but it's just not the case. Now that's a very frank and honest statement, isn't it? And my heart really goes out to him. And his exit from Strictly probably suggests that there's still anxiety and personal pain that he is um, experiencing that makes life challenging to him. He's been pursuing all the different ways that society says will make you happy, will bring you peace and contentment, and yet that's really not brought it. And I guess, perhaps, uh, if I ever had a chance to, ch to chat to Will, he might say that, that the shame that plagues him is caused by people who see gay sex as wrong, and he maybe would blame a church like Charlotte Chapel as continuing that stigma that causes us his unhappiness. And because of that, we're actually going to have a, a day uh, at the end of October on the 29th to consider this important issue of sexuality and, and uh, the way society is and how we should relate to it as a church. And I'd encourage you to sign up to come along. I think this is a very important area. And it's an area that we can't really uh, deal with adequately on a Sunday morning. In truth, the Bible does have some very uncomfortable things to say, not just to people in the LGBT community, but to every one of us. It's actually a deeply personal book that challenges every single person here. Because the Bible shines a light into our hearts, and it shows us that we are sinful people. And there are real consequences in our lives because of the sinful things we do. And that impacts our relationship with God. It impacts our relationships with other people. And it impacts our relationships, our internal selves. The conflict that we feel within ourselves. This is a world where there is alienation, loneliness, pain, and suffering because of the sinful things that we do. And for all our technological progress and materialism, there's this growing epidemic 
of mental illness in our culture that should cause us to ask some very big questions. What's at the root of all of this? As we see anxiety and stress and depression and social phobia and eating disorders and self-harm on the rise, what is driving all of this? The Bible makes for uncomfortable reading because it reveals that the problem is inside of us. That we are more sinful than we've ever realized. But if we'll take the time to properly listen, it will also reveal to us that we are more loved by God than we could ever dream or hope for. And that there is an answer outside of us. And if there's one point in human history that reveals this most clearly, it is that moment where Jesus Christ was crucified by the Romans outside the walls of Jerusalem in the first century AD. And we've begun to think about it this morning in our songs. All of the four gospel accounts tell us eyewitness testimony about the life of Jesus. And the extraordinary thing is that they really focus in on the last week and even the last day before he died. And I'm sorry if you're squeamish, but there is something ugly that we need to see. I don't know whether you can imagine it, but a naked man who's been tortured and so badly beaten up that his face is grotesquely swollen. He's so disfigured that he no longer looks human. And he's surrounded by jeering crowds who mock him as he carries a wooden cross piece upon his back. And every step that wood rubs against a back that is just full of open wounds because he has been brutally whipped. And there's blood everywhere. And they've brought him to the place where they'll finish him off. They fix the wooden piece that he carried onto a long stake in the ground and they pick up a hammer and nails and they press the nails into his flesh and they drive the nails through to fix his body to the wood. And then the wooden cross is lifted up off the ground and his whole body jars as the thing slams down into a slot in the ground. And then for about three hours he suffers in agony And people continue to mock and insult him. A profound darkness comes over the scene in the middle of the day. And for a further three hours, you're mystified by this darkness. And at the end of it, there is a loud cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And not much longer, there's a further cry. And he breathes his last breath. What an ugly scene. What have we just witnessed? Why all this suffering? Why all this blood? Well, the answer to that question can be found in the book of Isaiah. Chapter 53. And if you have a church Bible, you'll find this on page 741. Page 741. Going to examine three verses, verses 4 to 6. And what is totally remarkable about about this is that the answer was given 700 years before the event of the crucifixion itself. 
This was such a monumental moment in human history that God wanted us to understand its, its significance by telling us in advance what would happen to his servants. Over the last few months, we've been working through the book of Isaiah, and we've been seeing how God revealed to Isaiah that the answer to the, the problems in the world are going to be fixed by this mysterious person called the servants. And over the last few weeks, we've been slowly working through this uh, section called the fourth servant song. It begins at the end of chapter 52 in verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised up, lifted, and highly exalted. And so the person that uh, the Bible wants to direct our attention to is one who's going to be totally victorious, the one who's going to achieve what he sets out to achieve, He will be someone raised up, lifted up, highly exalted by God in the heavenly place. And the remarkable thing about this glorious achievement is it's going to come about through terrible suffering and pain. And this morning we're going to get to the heart of its message in this little midsection. Arguably, this is the most significant part of Isaiah, and this is the the heart of it. We are at the heart of the heart of the Old Testament as it points to what is to come. And it answers the question, why will the servant suffer and die? So let me read these verses, verses 4 to 6. Follow along. Surely, he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds... We are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Isaiah writes from the perspective of people who once did not understand what was happening in the suffering of the servant. If you look back at verse 3. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain, like one from whom people hid their faces. He was despised, and we held him in low esteem. And perhaps that's true of you today. You're not even quite sure why you're in church today. Maybe someone's invited you. Maybe you just walked in off the street, and and you've never really understood what all this business about Jesus dying on a cross was about. Well, please listen carefully this morning. This was the perspective once of the people speaking in these verses. Once they'd not understood why this servant suffered so much. But there was a moment of comprehension, a moment of insight, a moment of revelation, in fact, where they got it. And it so gripped their hearts that they wanted to share it with, um, with other people. Even though they knew that some would find it hard to understand. That's how verse 1 begins. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? So what was it that they understood? Let me suggest three things this morning. Firstly, 
His suffering and death reveals the problem of our sin. His suffering and death reveals the problem of our sin. Look at these words that describe our condition. Verse 5, our transgressions. It's a word that speaks about how we willfully rebel against God's rules and commands. God says, you shall not give false testimony. Do not lie. But when it is inconvenient to tell the truth, we choose to transgress his command and instead tell lies. It's not just presidential candidates who've told lies to cover up their mistakes, to give the impression that we are better than we are. We all do it. God says, you shall not commit adultery. But instead, when our lustful hearts desire another, we transgress this command and cheat on our spouse. That's transgression. Breaking God's law, willfully choosing to go against it. There's another word here, verse 5, our iniquities. And the Hebrew word has that sense of being bent. That, That our very human nature is twisted and perverted. That there's something about our inner selves since the the fall in the Garden of Eden that is an ever-flowing stream of sin that comes out of our hearts. You know, we see this in the most trivial ways. I remember going on a big uh, Ferris wheel attraction in Wales a long time ago and we were commanded before we we got onto it not to throw things at people or spit at them as we ascended high in the sky. The thought had never crossed my mind to do such a thing. But even as they said it, I felt my salivary glands begin to squeeze more spit in my mouth. And I thought, yeah, wouldn't that be a great thing to do? It's trivial, but it reveals there's something bent and twisted inside of us. Someone says, you don't do this. And some of us go, oh yeah, I will. I will do that. You see, we transgress God's commands because our very nature is bent and twisted. That that is the iniquity of our hearts. Third description, verse 6, gone astray. Like sheep, we've wandered far away from God. He's the great shepherd. He's done nothing but good for us. He has cared for us, protected us, fed us, saved us from many Struggles and difficulties if we're still here, and yet we have wandered away from him and we've headed into, headed into dangerous places that imperil our souls. We're prey to wild animals that want to harm and destroy. I don't know whether you heard yesterday the, the news that uh, there are some UK government officials now have gone to Calais to see if there are children uh, in the uh, impromptu camps there that could be brought to the UK for their safety if they have connected family members. Because there's a great fear as they look to disperse the Calais camp that predatory people will take these children and exploit and abuse them. Stop for a moment and think, what does that tell us about the ugliness of our human nature? That we rightly fear such a thing. That's our iniquity. And in our sin, and as we we go astray from God, it puts us in peril and danger. The fourth description, 
Each of us has turned to our own way, verse 6. You see, we can't simply blame society. We can't just blame a crowd mentality or other people. There is in each one of us a proud and foolish desire to go our own way. Each one of us has turned. We know what's best, we think. We want to set our own agenda. Uh, We want to determine what is right for us. No one has the right to say that what I want to do is wrong. Each of us have turned to our own way. And what are the consequences of uh, of living that way? What has it meant to us? Well, back in verse 4, it's described as our pain and our suffering. All of our lives are blighted by suffering that we experience because of our transgressions and iniquities. This can be directly because of the choices that we've made. It can also be indirectly. There's genuine personal pain and heartache that we experience ourselves uh, and cause other people. And because of our twisted desires that pursue our own selfish agendas, we experience pains and sorrows. But the weakness of sickness and sorrows in this life, they come to us not necessarily because of specific sins that we've committed, but merely because we're now part of a, of a sin-cursed world which has made sickness and death part of all of our life stories. And like Will Young, we often go looking to find contentment and peace in all the wrong places, to, to numb the pain and cope with the suffering. Another consequence is the word that we find there uh, in verse 4 and in verse 5, punishment. We know wrongdoers and criminals deserve punishment. We're quick to point the fingers at others and uh, so quick to defend our own wrongdoing as being justified and reasonable that we fail to recognize that having transgressed God's holy laws, we also deserve God's punishment. Now my friends today, we will never understand the sufferings of the cross of Christ until we see our own sinfulness and how serious these words that describe who we are and what we are, that that is our real problem. Because only then we will begin to see the wonder of the cross. Because there's a second thing that God revealed that we need to understand. That his suffering and death was as a substitute for us. Verse 4, surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Do you see what was going on in the suffering and crucifixion of Jesus Christ? He offered himself as a substitute to be punished in our place. He offered himself. That's implicit in the phrase, he took up our pain. He bore our suffering. 
as Alec Motier uh, writes, with neither our cooperation nor understanding from us, the servant took on himself all that blights our lives. He lifts up burdens off others and chooses to carry them on himself. And you know, when they first considered the suffering of the servant, they, they, they thought, well, he, he must have deserved it. He's being punished by God for something in his life. But then they finally understood it. Here's the moment of revelation. Here's the moment of understanding. He chose to take up their pain. He was carrying their suffering. He was being punished by God, but not for his own sin. He had no sin. He was being punished for theirs. In the Exodus events, uh, the times of God's judgment are experienced in the darkness. And the gospel writers all tell us that how in the middle of the day, from 12 till 3 in the afternoon, there was complete darkness around the cross. Because there's something going on here that's more than the physical sufferings of Christ. There's something spiritual going on here. There's something cosmic going on here. As God is pouring out his just punishment for sins on Jesus. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. There's no doubt we're talking about his death here. The words pierced and crushed in their original language are of a lethal piercing, of a fatal crushing. His death was for their sin. He offered himself as a substitute. And these verses are perhaps the clearest verses in the Bible for the doctrine that we call penal substitution. There was a penalty to pay, and he willingly chose to be a substitute to pay the price for our sins. Now, God had given them a very uh, important illustration of this principle in an annual Jewish calendar event, the Day of Atonement. And I want you to see this. Uh, so keep your fingers in Isaiah and turn back to the book of Leviticus. You'll find this on page 119 in the church Bibles. Leviticus chapter 16. This is kind of at the center of the book of Leviticus. It's the, it's the day that's the most important day in the calendar for Israel, for God to be able to dwell and live amongst them, this day of atonement. And there are two goats. One is sacrificed and its blood is applied within the tabernacle. But then there's another goat. See what happened to the scapegoat. Look at verse 20. Leviticus 16, verse 20. When Aaron had finished making atonement for the most holy place, the tent of meeting and the altar, he shall bring forward the live goat. He is to lay both hands on the head of the live goat and confess over it all the wickedness and rebellion of the Israelites, all their sins, and put them on the goat's head. He shall send the goat away into the wilderness in the care of someone appointed for the task. The goat will carry on itself all their sins to a remote place and the man shall release it in the wilderness. 
The symbolism is so significant. Aaron the priest, uh, representatively for the whole of Israel, lays his hands on the head of the goat. He confesses all the sins of the people. And it's as if it's a moment of transfer. He, he confesses, he takes it, he places it on the head of the goat. And the goat is sent away to a remote place, literally a land of cutting off. It was a place no, of, with no doubt that where the goat was expected to die. And as the goat is sent away from the people, it is said to carry on itself, or literally it could be translated, bear all their sins away. The burden is passed on. And it would have filled their hearts with joy to see their sins figuratively being taken away. Now all of that is, is background to what is happening here in the suffering servant. All those scapegoats were, were pointing to Jesus Christ. The true scapegoat, who is the only one who could really bear the sin, guilt, and punishment of people. Swapping places with them so that he is condemned in their place. He bore our suffering. That's what we need to understand. His suffering and death reveals the problem of our sin. His suffering and death was as a substitute for us. And thirdly, his suffering and death saves all who depend upon him. Look at the outcome uh, of this substitution in verse 5. Two things. Firstly, peace. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. Now that the punishment is paid, now that the the, the um, he has been pierced for our iniquities. There is peace with God. All offense is taken away and there can be reconciliation with God. Secondly, in verse 5, healing. By his wounds we are healed. Do you see, in the sacrifice of Jesus, there is an answer to, to all that blights our lives in a sin-cursed world. Jesus displayed this in his earthly ministry as he went healing the sick and curing those who were demon-possessed. And he showed us what the new heavens and the new earth will be like when the kingdom of God comes in his fullness where there will be no more sickness or no more sorrow or pain, no more deformity, no more disease, no more separation. And that healing begins now in our own brokenness. As the gospel of Jesus works its way out in our thinking, in our affections, in our desires, in our relationships with others. Do you know, there is now a basis for true honesty and forgiveness. There is now a way for restored relationship, for, for genuine, grace-filled community, because there is healing at the cross of Christ, and there is peace with God. Ray Ortland Jr., in, in a sermon on this passage, puts it this way. His blood is flowing down into pools at the foot of that cross. But it doesn't lie there in waste and loss. It flows out towards us. Guilty, sad us. 
His blood flows out towards a woman who has shamed herself in a desperate craving to be loved. His blood washes her shame clean off her. Then that shame flows back to the cross where it shames Jesus and is no longer her burden to bear. His blood flows out toward a man held in bondage to lust. He's discovered too late that there's no comfort there, only emptiness and self-hatred. But the blood of Jesus flows out to that man, cleanses him entirely, and takes the painful wrong back to the cross where Jesus suffers for it as his own wrong, freeing that man forever. The blood of Jesus flows out to sinners of all kinds, taking from them their guilt, their shame, their loss, their tears, their despair, and giving them a whole new life. And Jesus is saying to us right now, I don't want you to bear your burden any longer. Let my punishment bring you peace. Let my wounds heal you. And if I ever had the privilege to sit down with Will Young, this is what I'd want to say to him. This is such good news for all who come to depend upon Jesus. There is peace. There is healing at the cross of Christ. But, you know, we must personally come and confess our sin to God. We must come, as it were, to lay our sins on the head of the scapegoat that is Jesus Christ. He willingly came to be our scapegoat, to take up our pain, to bear our suffering. But you must lay your sins upon his head. Have you done that? Do you see the ugliness of your sin as you look at the cross of Christ? In the movie, The Passion of the Christ, that Mel Gibson did, it's, it's, it's so horrifically bloody and violent, I, I couldn't barely watch it, to be honest. There's so much I couldn't watch, I just had to cover my eyes. It was too brutal. But the scene where the nail is hammered into Jesus apparently is a close-up shot and Mel pushed the actor aside and picked up the nail and it was his hand that drove the nail in. And uh, for all the mess that Mel Gibson seems to be in, he understood that it was his sin that placed Jesus there. Do you see that? Do you see how serious it is? If there was any other way, do you think God would not have done it? Do you see the ugliness of your sin? Do you see that he is a substitute for you? Praise God if you do. He's raised up. He's lifted up. He's highly exalted. He is the praise of heaven for he fully paid the price. He is a complete savior for all eternity and his 
the salvation that he brings covers all our sin. Praise him. Do you see that he does save all who depend upon him? My Christian friends, do you see he bore it for you? I don't know whether you're still here and you're carrying guilt and shame. Do you not see he's carried it for you so that you don't have to carry it? Come to him today. Place it upon his head. And believe the promise of the gospel that the price is paid. His punishment has brought us peace. His wounds heal us. The Lord laid our iniquity on him. So today we could be completely forgiven. Do you believe it? Come into the joy of it today. It's true. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you know us in ways we don't even know ourselves. Uh, We struggle to see the depths of our sinfulness. And yet we thank you that you've revealed to us such amazing love, such incredible love through the brutal crucifixion of the Son that you love in our place. And so we thank you again. Thank you seems so inadequate. And we ask that the reality of what we've begun to gaze at again would just go deep into all of our souls, that we know that there is hope and healing and peace if we come to Christ. Help us to come to him by faith today, knowing that he has borne our sins away. We ask this in Christ's precious name. Amen.